Welcome to It's All Connected. I'm your host, Adam Nye. Hello, welcome to It's All Connected. This is episode three, and this week I'm going to talk about WandaVision. Which means I am going to contradict what I said the first two episodes um, in which I had said I wasn't really going to do this until after the show was over. But as I was thinking through the things I wanted to talk about this week, I thought through some themes and I'm working shop, workshopping lots of different ideas. And this one was just the one that got me the most excited and it had to do with WandaVision. So I'm like, all right, we'll end up probably doing a couple of episodes on WandaVision so this will be the first one. Um, and I want to issue a blanket spoiler warning right here for, uh, you know, all episodes of WandaVision I'm going to touch on up through episode six at the time that I'm recording this. Um, but I'm also going to talk about um, Spider-Man Homecoming and Far From Home. Those movies are older, but if you haven't seen them, spoiler warning. Um and I'm going to be talking about uh, a few other movies. The one I want to make sure I issue a spoiler warning for in particular is a movie called Memento. I'm going to be talking about that movie later on. It's a fantastic movie with Guy Pierce. It's uh, pretty old now. I don't remember when it was made. At least 15 years old. I'm sure more than that. Um, and if you haven't seen it, it's the kind of one, it's a kind of movie you don't want to know too much about going into it. So if, if, you're interested in, um, I, I'm not going to tell you anything about it to make you interested until I spoil it. So uh, anyway, just spoiler warning at this point uh, for that movie. So um, so yeah, let's talk about WandaVision for, for a little bit. I, I want to talk it like I've been doing on these earlier episodes. I want to kind of think it through in terms of um, other movies that are saying similar things on the same topic in kind of a cultural conversation. Uh, and when you think about WandaVision and you think about the kinds of topics it's, it's hitting on, it's definitely getting into that, um, you know, how do you know what's real kind of question. And that's a question that stories have been dealing with for a long time, going back a long way. Um, Shakespeare has A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is dealing with that a little bit. Uh, within our, our current society, I think The Matrix stands as like a watershed moment. I actually feel like many of the things we are dealing with today as a society in terms of like fake news and how do you know who to trust and, and just the basic suspicion that everyone is lying to us, that the mainstream media, all they're doing is trying to control us and spin some false narrative... Um, it seems like virtually everyone is convinced of that, and I kind of blame The Matrix. Uh, I, I think that movie sent us down a path as a society where there was no longer going to be any such thing as trusted news outlets, or really kind of uh, sources of information that everyone trusted. There, there began to be among us as a people the sense that there is the wool pulled over our eyes through literally every fiber of the fabric of our, uh, of our society. Education, media, politics, religion, everything was there to, uh, to lie to us. 
I mean, it, The Matrix, it, it was such a compelling movie. I mean, it, it is a fantastic movie. I'm not saying anything negative about the movie. The, um, it, it was bringing up to us as a society, a, society um, a question of epistemology. How do you know what you know? And suggesting to us that maybe there's a lot of things we think are obvious, but actually are uh, results of a kind of cultural programming. We've been taught to see things a certain way, and it might be just as possible to have taught us to see things a different way, and we've just never thought about it. And uh, that movie really got us thinking about that as a society. And it, it was a part of a cultural conversation that really snowballed after that. Um, I think maybe even the exact same year The Truman Show came out and presented some similar ideas and and when you talk about the Truman Show, I think we're you know that has some really clear connections to Wandavision from the very first episode of Wandavision. I was thinking like, ooh, interesting. They're doing kind of a similar thing to the Truman Show, but they're playing with it a little bit. Um, Truman Show took some of the things about false reality that you saw in the Matrix, but particularly put the spotlight on the American dream, the white picket fence suburban, um, you know comfortable life, middle-class America, that um, was really kind of the, the goal we were all brought up believing was attainable. If you worked hard and you went to school and uh, you got your ducks in a row, you could have, um, you know, the white picket fence, the suburban home with a garage and two cars in it. Um, so those movies of the, of the very late 90s, kind of turn of the millennium, They've, you know, I, I think those movies were important. They opened up uh, some conversations, asking some really good questions. I don't think we have, as a society, have come up with good answers to yet. That's sort of the the problematic legacy, maybe, of those movies, is they asked some good questions, some important questions, and we really have not, I don't think, come up with great answers for those those questions yet. Um, and actually, I, I think we are seeing over the last year or so in our society some really negative uh, blowback of not having a good answer. Um, and let me sort of build up to what I mean by that, by first talking about, I think we're seeing a second stage in the sort of democratizing of everything with, within our society. The first stage of that was the idea that, you know, we were, you know, the foundations of our society, uh, of American society, were built in the... Um, running away from monarchy, right? The idea that there was some royal class that ought to have the right to have everything while the rest of us just had to toil and do whatever they say so that they could be comfortable. Um, in America, the American dream was you can be your own little king. You, your home can be your castle. And in it, you can run your own little kingdom. Of course, I mean, if, if you're sort of uh, white middle-class male uh, was the, no one was saying that out loud, but that was sort of the assumption, right? But, you know, yeah, your, your home was your castle. You could have a king-size bed. You could have a king-size fries and Coke from the Burger King. You know, <laughs> the, the, the idea of monarchy, of kingdom, kingship, royalty, was no longer going to be reserved for the precious few. It was going to be available to everybody. And so, yeah, now... Everybody has their rights. Everybody, there's a distri distribution of power. Okay, so phase two in that 
What I think we're seeing now is also the democratization of reality and the right to describe reality, the, the, you know, the right to be an expert. It used to be, just like it used to be that there, were, there was a, uh, a royal class and then there was you know, lower classes, it used to be that there were these people called experts that had special training in, uh, in research and they knew how to get the facts and distribute those to everybody else. Um, the Matrix <laughs> and other, other, you know, really, you know, Watergate and other kinds of massive cataclysmic scandals in our culture sort of shook the foundations of that. And everybody was suspicious. I'm not sure we can trust the experts anymore. And what that has done is made everybody an expert, right? Um, now, uh, because there's this, the, the suspicion of people with PhDs, <laughs> like me, by the way, um, everybody feels like their own opinion, however constructed, is as valuable as anybody else's, no matter what their training or expertise might be, because all the experts are lying to us. Um, and that's not something, you know, I am necessarily saying is wrong or have the answers to, but it's something I think, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing maybe the, the negative effects of something that might have some positive sides to it as well, right? It's good to not just believe everything somebody with a doctorate, you know, an MD or a PhD says after their name. It's, it's good to hold that with a little bit of suspicion, not just assuming that everything the experts say is right. But at the same time, I will say, as a person with some training in, um, uh, you know, in religion, in theology and uh, biblical texts, um, biblical doc Christian doctrine, I have conversations with uh, other Christians all the time in which, you know, my opinion is just one among others and uh, not with any necessarily greater evidence brought to a conversation or anything, but just with a, a real strong conviction they're right. People are just like, no, this is the truth. Um, and, you know, I, I don't mean to sound arrogant about that and be like, no, they should believe me because I have all the training. It's just something I observe. I'm like, huh, um, <laughs> the, we are not a society that cares all that much about what school you went to anymore, like we maybe once were. Um, and so it leaves us with this sort of crisis of epistemology. How do you know what otherwise might be known? Now, let's go kind of to our, this is an MCU podcast. I've been talking about non-MCU movies and non-MCU issues. Um, has the MCU touched on this issue? I want to say so far it has a little bit, and it's more like it's gearing up to do it more so in the future. I mean, you've had Loki, for instance, the trickster, the, the guy who knew how to create images that you couldn't trust, right? He made himself... Uh, looked like he was in one place in order to lure his brother Thor into the uh, the Hulk cage in the first Avengers movie, uh, but he wasn't really there. So you, you know, he's played with that. The Spider-Man movies, I think, um, number one, Spider-Man is uh, has been the only hero in the MCU with a secret identity, uh, so he has to you know kind of play with a little bit of falsifying reality. So it's kind of been there as a theme in the Spider-Man movies. The second one, Far From Home, obviously took that up quite a, a notch because you've got Mysterio who is creating false images all the time. 
okay, fine. They weren't necessarily asking any, I don't think, major philosophical questions with that. Um, maybe until the end of Far From Home when you have sort of the big fake reveal that Spider-Man is a murderer and you have, you know, the fake news about it. You have J. Jonah Jameson on his uh, news channel presenting footage seeming to prove that Spider-Man is, uh, is a murderer. Well, we, we don't really know where that's going yet. It's an interesting set of questions. I think Spider-Man 3 will probably take that forward a little bit. But I want to say the space that WandaVision is playing in is, I think, doing something a little bit more interesting. Because WandaVision is dealing with, you know, uh, kind of fake reality. But its, uh, its story themes are not so much getting at the question of how can you know what's real and separate it from what's not real. Not real. That doesn't seem to really be its focus. It's more about why do we buy the false realities? What motivates us to accept fictions without sufficient evidence? Because, you know, that's definitely the crisis in our society right now. Huge swaths of people on both sides of the political divide absolutely convinced of certain claims about reality without sufficient evidence to be as confident as they are in those claims. Um, that seems to be what, what WandaVision, I think, is really uh, dealing with. Why is Wanda herself motivated to accept a false reality that she herself is helping to perpetuate? Right, so it's dealing with grief. It's dealing with trauma. It's uh, it's pushing pushing into some of those issues that are that I find that a little bit more helpful. It doesn't necessarily tell us how we know what's real, but it can start to help us look at that question from a different angle. What motivates us to accept the things that aren't real when we are suspicious about them, or maybe we're even we know they're not real, but we still sort of cling to them because they're the preferable lie. That was in Truman Show, right? That was what Kristoff uh, was trying to convince Truman to do. Now, once Truman found the truth, Kristoff wanted to say, okay, fine, you know the difference between fiction and reality, but isn't my fiction preferable? <laughs> Wouldn't you rather stay there? And, you know, he, Truman's the hero he is because, no, he, he wants reality. Okay, before I come back to WandaVision, I think there's one other really great movie, I mentioned it earlier in the show, that deals with this sort of, the, the motivating factors for why we deceive ourselves. And that's the movie Memento. Um, th this movie was maybe, uh, I remember I looked at this one in my kind of early, mid-twenties, and it started, it started to shape how I looked at movies and the kinds of uh, thinking it could uh, provoke in me. It is the first major film from Christopher Nolan, uh, who has obviously gone on to just, I, in my mind, have a stellar career. Um, I personally don't think Tenet <laughs> is his best work, but uh, I mean, uh, you've got the Batman trilogy, the, the Dark Knight trilogy, sorry. Um, you've got Inception, you've got Interstellar, um, Insomnia, which is not one of his more celebrated movies, I think is absolutely incredible with Al Pacino and Robin Williams. Um, but yeah, Memento is where it all started for Christopher Nolan. And so here's where the spoilers are, you know, just to spoil the whole story. 
which again, it you should see this movie. If you haven't hit pause right now, go watch that movie and come back. But basically this is the story about a guy who has um who who has committed a crime. But he uh because of an accident has short-term um memory loss. He cannot make new memories since the moment of his accident. Um and I'm going to forget all kinds of details. I have not watched this movie recently. Um, but what he does is leave himself when he's conscious, you know, in, in the, the short span of time when he finds out something, he will leave himself a note. And, and when the notes he thinks are really important, he puts those notes on his own body. He tattoos them to himself. Um, because ultimately, uh, as you're experiencing the movie... He is um, he is investigating who killed his wife. He's trying to find out who killed his wife. Um, what you find out at the end of the movie is that he, uh, depending on where you are in the timeline, because it's nonlinear, he kills or has killed uh, the police officer who has done the investigation and, and I believe knows the answer. Uh, and, and this is the part where I'm, I, I forget some of these details. All I remember is that Guy Pierce has killed um, the, the police officer and um, has hidden that reality from himself. He, he, when he knows he has done it, he does not tattoo that. He, does, uh, he actually writes a misleading note to himself so that he will not know that, so that he will continue looking for his wife's killer um, I think he actually maybe uh, the, the, the content of the note is that this police officer had been his wife's killer and so go find this guy even though he knows he's sending himself on a, a wild goose chase because this guy's now dead uh, Guy Pearson killed him anyway the point here is this guy is intentionally hiding the truth from himself he makes a, a point at a, a critical moment in his life. He makes a decision to lie to himself. And then from that point forward, he will absolutely believe that lie. And the rest of his life and all the purpose behind it, which he is driven to, to pursue this investigation, there's this meaning and drive in his life, and it's all predicated on a lie to himself. I just found that very powerful when I saw that movie, and it made me really think that the point of the story might not be so much our individual realities. Because none of us can relate to that story on an individual level. I don't have massive head trauma <laughs> that keeps me from um, making new memories and so, you know, piecing this all together from what I've written to myself. I took that movie as more of a parable about our culture and the way we tell ourselves our history. The way we um, think about the present, the way we construct an understanding of the present in light of our past and how, you know, th this is a major part of the conversation within our cultural or societal dialogue. How should we be teaching history in our, you know, in, in our schools? Because how we understand our society at the present is very tied to the story we tell ourselves about our societal past. And if we're lying to ourselves, about our uh, our societal past, we really can't, we will not be able to deal with the dysfunction you know, permeating our society in the present. We won't be able to establish justice among different kinds of people groups, especially when 
it's it's just it's not a hidden secret at all in our in our society that um, the American economy, especially you know obviously in the South, uh, for a first half of its existence was built on the backs of slaves we had kidnapped from another continent. That that is a part of our story. It's not something we can ever erase. It's something we have to uh, be able to readmit to the conversation. Every time we talk about how we establish uh, justice, especially when there continues to be marginalization among uh, among people groups in our society. So I, I just found that movie, Memento, really powerful within that. And I think WandaVision is tapping into a similar thing, but I, more powerfully. Because rather than just sort of the lying to oneself, y- y- there's the gaslighting, right? There's Wanda's control of vision. There's uh, her keeping their past, her own past and Vision's past, keeping all of that uh, a secret from Vision in order to uh, perpetuate uh, a fiction in the present, in order to have their suburban family life there in Westview. She is, uh, if not actively lying to him, she is hiding the truth from vision and he him getting suspicious in the last few episodes it has been really powerful episode five to me is for sure the best episode and um the whole thing is great i think but that that scene at the end where he confronts her um and he gets so angry i think you kind of put that into this conversation with memento and there's there's something about that when the society is like a few generations you know, down, having been kind of given a certain uh, angle about about how the fact that, you know, in America, everybody is equal. Anybody can be anything they want to be. And you're looking at the, you're looking at our society, you're looking at our history, you're like, that's an ideal that is wonderful. I mean, you know, I'm glad to be an American just to have such an ideal, but something's not quite right here. We're not entirely being honest about equal access to that American dream. And, um, you know, rather than the idea in Memento of like, you know, lying to yourself, having sort of a parental figure, you know, or in, in you can take that as an, uh, an analogy for like earlier generations or, um, you know, those controlling education or whatever, however you want to think of it. There, there's a kind of gaslighting. There's a kind of like, no, you didn't do anything wrong. You're not guilty. Therefore, you don't need to worry about questions of justice. You have not done anything unjust to anybody else. So just, you know, keep living your life. Just, you know, be happy. Have, you know, and, and there's something in, in Vision's rage when he comes up off the floor and he's like, stop lying to me. Because there's something deep within us that I think God put there. That it's like, no, we need to live in, in light of the truth. We can't accept, back to Truman Show, what Kristoff wanted Truman to do. Go, live a lie, because it's better than the reality. It's like, when we try to do that, something deep within us just gets enraged. And maybe even more so when someone else tries to make us do that. When someone else tries to suppress our own quest of the truth. Um, so... That's, you know, and then this, this week's episode where, where uh, Vision uh, 
starts to like, all right, so I, I know I can't sort of just play by Wanda's rules. I'm going to have to sort of go out on my own. And when he goes to find the truth and man, in that final scene, willing to like lay down his life. He's like, I'd rather die than continue to trap these other people. He has seen the damage Wanda is doing to others when he unlocked um, Norm and heard that Norm has a father who's sick. He's trying to get a hold of his sister. And, you know, there's real pain. There's real worry there. Vision's like, nope, we can't continue living this lie if it means someone else is suffering. Um, and his willingness to lay down his life there is a whole other powerful theme with theological implications. But where I want to sort of um, round this out and move sort of from the uh, from one division to theology is to say, okay, if if we start to get a handle on on some of this being true, um, you know, in our reality, that. Maybe there are aspects of our of our comfortable lives that are built on falsehoods. Um, you know, what's the answer to that? How do we act like vision and go find the edge of Westview and, and try to break outside it? I don't necessarily have a theological answer to that question, at least not this week. But I do think the Christian tradition provides us some um, some resources for being more like Vision than being like Wanda, or even being like uh, you know Tyler uh, Hayward, the the director of Sword, who's just like you know this is a problem. The way to solve it is just direct uh, violent confrontation. Um, I think what we find in the Christian tradition is two things that are uh, that are just really important. Number one is the canon of scripture. The fact that we, that we have a book and, and to be a Christian, at least, um, you know, the, the desire, I know not all Christians have the spiritual discipline of like reading their Bible every day. Uh, and I, I don't want to uh, lay a guilt trip on anybody, uh, but just to sort of hold out what uh, the Christian tradition, at least uh, since the Reformation has held out as like the ideal. The, the, the goal to strive toward is to have a regular um, habit of indwelling the pages of Scripture. Uh, and maybe I should even say it, that's not even primarily an individual discipline. That's something that we're meant to be doing together in our communities, right? Um, the, the, the job of the, uh, of, the, of the preacher is not necessarily to give us, you know, three points that all sound that I'll start with S and rhyme with something in order to kind of, you know, pump us up and give us energy or inspiration. Uh, that's meant to be an act in which we together as a community um, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we hear it throughout the pages of scripture. They want, they walk us through this massive, you know, uh, thousands of years long story and that's really what I want to put put the focus on here. Whether we're you were inhabiting scripture as an individual or as a community, and of course that's not an either or. This is a both and. This is something we that we do both together and um, and individually. But when we have inhabit the pages of scripture, we are inhabiting inhabiting a history. And history is something um, that one does from a certain point in time by looking back on earlier uh, points of time and being honest about it. 
right? There's good history and there's bad history. Bad history is propaganda. When you only select the, 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 the points from the past that push a certain political or social agenda, and you're kind of intentionally leaving some stuff out. I think we find throughout the Bible that their way of uh, doing history is not that. They're, they're quite unkind to themselves, right? The, the uh, communities that, uh, that wrote and passed along the scriptures. If you, if you read through the, the narrative stuff, and not just the narrative, all, all of the scriptures, you find the people of Israel reflecting on their shared past in very honest terms. They're, they're not pumping themselves up with what a great people they are and how amazing their founding fathers are. Uh, they don't do that. They're very, very honest about their failings and their triumphs, but always giving the credit for the triumphs to the Lord. Um, but they want to learn from their own cultural mistakes. They're, they're very motivated by that. And so they include them in all the grimy detail. Uh, as they move forward, uh, as you move forward through the story of Scripture. So I think the Bible is not just a record of the past, it's also a model to follow in how we do our own cultural histories, how we look back on our pasts and and tell that story. Um, So that's the first thing, is just, number one, having the canon of Scripture, having the Bible as a... um, a historical thing that's also, you know, not just from the past, it's doing history. And then, uh, so there's, there's the canon itself and there's the discipline of reading it, but then there's also the discipline of confession. This is meant to be a habit uh, of the Christian life where we regularly rehearse to ourselves our sins. And I remember being confronted with that when I went to college uh, you know, at, at a non-Christian college. I was at a community college taking a philosophy class, and I had a professor who just talked about the Christian tradition as a, a form of self-hatred. You know, according to Christianity, you should be so convinced of your total depravity that you think you're just total pond scum, and that it's amazing that God could love you because you're such a pile of filth, uh, or something like that. And that struck me at the time, because I was impressionable. Um, and He's, he's not wrong that there are um, expressions of Christianity that are like that. There are communities and uh, certain yeah traditions within Christianity that are, I think, uh, unhealthily obsessed with their own sin. And I'm not advocating that. But I don't think the discipline of confession has to look like that. I don't think that's the only way to have a habit of reminding myself of my sins. The point of it, I think, is meant to be for the sake of honesty. And especially if what I'm rehearsing to myself is not just sins I've committed of, you know, I said a swear word when I was by myself or something like that. I'm not discounting that. But if I'm including in that sins I've done against others, and when I bring to mind the sin I've committed against someone else, I make a decision to go make that right, to seek reconciliation, you know, truth telling, which is the, you know, the the important first part of reconciliation that I'm first going to tell the truth to the person I've sinned against about my sin. I'm not going to hide it. We're not going to have our relationship go forward on a fiction as if nothing ever happened between us. No, something important has happened and it has to be named. And then I I can plead for their forgiveness. And if they offer it, uh, our our relationship will be greatly strengthened. Um, 
but that's I think a really healthy thing to do. I think it, it builds strong friendships, strong communities, um, and it 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 help it teaches us to not be an unjustly prideful people. Which is I I'm sorry that that's what I see going on in certain corner certain corners of uh, our American sort of political conversations right now, and and very much on both sides of the aisle. Um, the the progressive side is more tempted to um, see nothing but failure in earlier generations and very pridefully claim the moral high ground for us in the present. We have, we have, you know, come of age. We have finally learned how to love everybody and we're, and we're great. It's like, well, it's a little more complicated than that. But the, the temptation on the more conservative side of this political conversation is to um, look to the past to find a great America and want to make America great again. Um, and when you've accepted that project, you're just going to be very tempted to only, look, only see the greatness in America's past and, and not be real excited about being honest about our failures in the past, where, of course, that's where the growth is. Right. Acknowledging the failures so that we can move forward and do better in the present, not in a you know cocky way. We're like, oh, because we've acknowledged those failures now, that makes us better. No, you don't become better just by beating up your ancestors. Um, but you can learn. We, we, we can move forward. And I think, uh, you know, the habits of indwelling the Bible uh, and its story and uh, the habit of confessing our own sins, which, of course, I meant to say this earlier, but when I, when I talk about confession, I'm sure a lot of people are like, well, isn't that something like Roman Catholics do? And, and I want to sort of say the Roman Catholic Church has a particularly prescribed way of, um, of doing the discipline of confession. And of course, you know, there's theological difference, differences because it's a sacrament within Roman Catholicism where it's not in Protestantism. Um, but it's still a healthy discipline. I, I just want to sort of say on both sides, uh, you know, whether you're, uh, whether you're an evangelical or Protestant, and so confession is more like between you and God, or there was a thing within evangelicalism a, a while ago about having like a, a accountability partner. And I won't say too much about that. It, it does not seem as popular today. Um, but yeah, whatever that looks like, I, I think it's important to say these things out loud. I do think it's best to say them to people. I think the formalism and stuff of like an accountability partner was kind of weird, but the idea of just having friends and family in your life that you can be honest with and, and speak the truth to, uh, satisfies, uh, something of the idea of, of this being a discipline. But I think it's, uh, yeah, it accomplishes the same goals, uh, in the confessional booth in Roman Catholic churches. So um, I, I think it's all to the good. Okay, well, that's where I'm going to wrap up this, uh, this episode of It's All Connected. I'm looking forward to talking to you all more soon. I really appreciate the feedback I've been getting about the show. Uh, several of you have reached out uh, on Twitter. Um, I've gotten messages. How else have I gotten messages? A few other places. But, well, let me just continue to, uh, continue to direct you to Twitter. Uh, at Adam Nye, A-D-A-M-N-I-G-H. I'd love to hear from you. Um, have a great day. See you next time.